I've been using this uh, image of mosaic the last couple weeks, and we're continuing on in that, the idea of the kingdom mosaic. And those of you that are art people, maybe you have mosaics or you've, or you've uh, played around with that. We have this vase at home. I forgot to bring it. It's, it's about this tall. It's sitting on our mantle, but it's made up of all sorts of little different colored pieces of glass and uh, in kind of a mosaic pattern. And this, this picture, I know it's a little, little on the light side, but all kind of showing just the mosaic that makes up a tree and all the different colors that make it up, everything just a little bit different. And one of the interesting things about mosaics is your, our eyes are actually drawn to parts of it that seem a little bit off. And so when we think of the kingdom of God and the mosaic that we are privileged to be a part of, when one part suffers, all suffer. And actually part of our calling as followers of Jesus Christ is to not just be worried about ourselves, in fact, to worry about ourselves maybe even less so, but to be more open to all of the need around us. Because when our sisters and brothers in the mosaic, and even more broadly, our sisters and brothers in humanity are suffering, our hearts should be suffering as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about the power of proximity today. I want to read from Matthew 25, and this is one of the last sections of Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew. And this is where he uses the illustration of the sheep and the goats. So let me read some verses. I'm going to start in verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? 
he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is Jesus' final sermon, his final message to his disciples. This is the culmination of five extended periods of teaching in the book of Matthew. We know that Matthew structures his gospel in such a way that the original audience of Matthew were mostly, it was mostly intended for Jewish folks that were seeking to understand more about Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And in Matthew, there's all five sections of teaching, all the way back in the earlier chapters where Jesus gives his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he goes through all of these areas. But in each of these five sections of teaching, it strangely, to our ears, ends with a focus on final judgment, or some aspect of judgment. And here he uses this analogy of sheep and goats, being separated by the shepherd to describe what will happen when he returns to earth. I want to put your mind at ease that there is nothing inherently bad about sheep or goats. And in fact, in this story about sheep and goats, it actually has nothing to do with sheep or goats. So stop worrying about sheep or goats. Don't wonder what, you don't need to wonder what their coats are like, how they walk how inherently good or naughty they are, what they do, what they eat. None of that actually is intended here. None of it actually matters. Actually, in that day, both sheep and goats were both valuable, and both were actually pastured together, and they would be separated out when they were brought to market or used for food. What is important is that Jesus will return one day with all authority in that role that only he can fulfill, that of righteous judge. We don't always like to think about this aspect, that Jesus returns in that role to render judgment. We like the Sunday school version of Jesus, the kind shepherd who surrounds us with his loving arms. And he does do that, and he is that as well. Here, Jesus is urging his disciples to see that not only obedience to God, but faithful obedience to the will of God is the only thing that will stand at the end. And how is that demonstrated in our lives? It's shown by acts of love and mercy. Earlier in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has already said this things like this before. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So why would he use the, this picture of judgment here? We don't always like to think about these particular images. They frighten us. They scare us. Well, if you were to read on in Matthew, what happens right after this? Jesus knows that he is going to die soon and he will be betrayed. This is his final attempt, his final work and time with his disciples, the ones he has charged with carrying out the ongoing mission of God after he is gone. He knows he has limited time left to prepare 
his disciples. So he uses this dramatic image to motivate us to act in this life. His intention was never to get your salvation card and then sit in your chair waiting to go to heaven. That was never his intent. That we just wait around until Jesus returns, then he'll make everything good again. No, he intends for us to actually do something and to participate in restoring this world in our life. Our life here in Christ is actually the first fruits of eternal life with him forever. Sometimes, though, we like to take passages like this and we say, well, if we're supposed to do good things, then, but what about, you know, do we earn our salvation by doing good things? Well, no, we don't. But they're always meant to be a natural outpouring of the change that has happened in our heart. Our works are good deeds. Yes, they do not save us directly, but they are visible evidence to the world of our faithfulness to the Lord. They're not just evidence to us or to our sisters and brothers in faith, but also evidence to the world that we are who we say we are, and we are whose we say we are. Jesus also pushes us to seriously consider our identity, those deep questions of life. Most specifically, what kind of person am I? Who am I and whose am I? Am I one who is truly motivated by love and mercy or not? I would say that based on Jesus' words here, there are no loopholes. What we do and what we do not do matters when we stand before Jesus. It all matters. So there are a few things that I want to highlight this morning And then we can draw a couple of conclusions that have implications for our lives. On the back of your bulletin, I just have three simple statements, three things that we see in this particular passage. First is that we actually see who Jesus is. This almost seems like a no-brainer. We see who Jesus is in this chapter, and we see what motivates his heart. You see, Jesus could have come into this world as anyone, We know he came to earth as a human. He could have come as anyone. In fact, most people expected the Messiah to come as someone important. Someone big, like a king or a conquering hero. Instead, he was born as a helpless baby in a farm stall to poor parents from a place with a bad reputation. Yes, Jesus took the sins of the world into his body when he went to the cross. But he also experienced sin all throughout his life through the many injustices that existed in his day. Many of those same injustices exist in our day as well. A bounty was placed on him at birth by a corrupt king. His family experienced political unrest and famine. They were forced to flee their homeland. They were Uh, They went and entered a foreign land as refugees, and then they had to rely on the hospitality of foreigners, their neighbors now, to survive. Jesus endured oppression and discrimination and marginalization for living in a countercultural way, driven by love and mercy. 
Most people in that day were more interested in keeping a scorecard. And in some ways, it sounds familiar to today. Jesus was falsely accused and imprisoned. He was sentenced to death by an unjust court, acting in its own interests. He was unjustly killed in a brutal fashion to maximize pain and suffering. And why do I say all of this? I say all of this because when Jesus says, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, my fellow human beings, you did it to me. He wasn't just speaking in the abstract. He was speaking from his own experience. He wasn't trying to spiritualize this. He was speaking concretely. And yes, there may be spiritual implications, but he is speaking concretely. Jesus lived what it was like to exist on the margins. And so when I read his words, I see his words as prophetic. They're prophetic because he's standing in solidarity with all who experience marginalization and suffering throughout time, both then and today. If, we, if our hearts are not moved by suffering, we better believe that Jesus' heart is moved and is breaking at the suffering and injustice in our world today. So this is what we see first in this story. We see a little bit more about who Jesus is and what really motivates his heart. Secondly, we actually see who disciples are called to be. We like sometimes using a softer way of saying it. We, want, we are followers of Jesus, and I, I like that phrase. But... We also are disciples in the sense that we are called to follow the way of Jesus, to do the things that he actually said, and to be the people that he knows that we can be. When we say yes to God's love and follow Jesus as one of his disciples, you actually are given a unique commissioning in this world. It's a high honor to be able to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. It actually gives you purpose in your life to be those who reflect the love of God outwards, following his example of sacrificial love, especially towards those people that you would rather not. Jesus did that all the time. Sometimes we read that and we're like, how is he so patient with these people that were mistreating him so poorly and abusing him in so many ways? He's modeling what he would hope that we would do as well. In this particular story, Jesus is sitting with his closest disciples on the Mount of Olives, one of those very important places for Jesus' life. And he's painting this vivid picture of the end of history when he returns, a time where he sits on the throne with all humanity gathered before him. And he engages in this this difficult work that only he can do, the separation of people according to what motivated their heart. He provides great clarity on what God expects of his people, that we are to be those who are characterized by the acts of love and mercy that we show in this world. I've even heard an author go so far as to say that if we don't do this, we aren't really Christians. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But rather than making us fear and tremble, it actually is designed and urges us to motivate ourselves to do what we know is right, to reach out in love to the people that are unlovable. 
We know it's hard. And yet with the help of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible. So instead of trying to pick apart the symbolism of livestock, we should really actually just be inspired to live this way. Jesus says, if we do, we will receive our inheritance and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. How we apply Jesus' teaching actually has eternal implications for us. So we see who disciples are called to be in this story as well. And then lastly, we see the power of drawing near. The power of drawing near. When you are far away, when you are on the internet, when, you, when it is on the other side of the planet or even on the other side of town, it is easy to overlook or pass by suffering. It's easy to pass by the suffering of people because we like to avoid it. Or we even refuse to draw close to it. And I'll say more about this next week. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan in more detail. When suffering is out of sight, as the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. When we become accustomed or normalized to it, then sometimes it requires a strong jolt to our eyes to force them open to see. Jesus says, there will come a day where I'm going to separate people according to what was motivating their heart. To my right and to my left. The power of dry near, or another way of saying it, is the title of the message. The power of proximity, being close to. When we are not proximate to, when we are not close to those experiencing hunger or thirst, those who are unclothed or unhoused or imprisoned or sick in body, mind, or spirit, it becomes harder for our hearts to break. It's easier for our hearts to feel good when we can just stay home. It's harder for our hearts to move in love when we aren't close to suffering. But you see, God created us to be in relationship with him and with people in this world, to not shy away from the hard, to not shy away from suffering. God knows that there is immense power in drawing near. Why? Because that's what he did with us. He came down to earth, he drew near to us so that he could experience all of what it meant to be human and to have his heart break, so much so that he went to the cross to save everyone. There is power in proximity because relationships actually have the capacity to invigorate our faith and motivate our steps in the kingdom of God when we draw near. I've said this in different ways before on different Sundays, but that it's not just a matter of what we believe, but that it also matters how we believe. We can believe all the right things we want in our head, but if it isn't connected in that eight inches to our heart, and then if it doesn't translate into our hands and our feet, then all that head stuff doesn't mean too much. Throughout history people have tried to draw lines to separate. We saw this a bit as we dove into Micah 6 last week. 
There are some loud voices today who try to draw unhealthy and unbiblical lines between word and deed, evangelism and justice, head faith and heart action. The problem is, is that they've got the line in the wrong direction. They're trying to draw a line like this, when really it's supposed to be a line like this. Remember I used that illustration of the, uh, the dumbbells, or the, like if you're, if you're lifting weights, you've got the bar with the weights on either end. All of those things of Jesus are never designed to be separate. They're actually two parts of the same thing. They got the line wrong. Instead of this line, it's supposed to be like this, almost like a divine hyphen of how we're supposed to be. I was not sure if I wanted to say all of this. Some Christians try to water this down to narrow Jesus' focus, to spiritualize it about who are the least of these, that Jesus certainly couldn't have meant all people. Just like the man who wanted to sound smart, so he asked Jesus that question, well, who is my neighbor? Trying to get him to trip up a little bit, and Jesus is like, no, I'm not having any of that. Do not be tempted, my spiritual family, to domesticate the radical nature and intent of Jesus in order to make ourselves more comfortable. God's specific concern for the poor and oppressed is one of the most central themes in the Bible. One out of every 16 verses in the New Testament is about the poor. Now, if that sounds like a lot, in the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is one out of ten. In Luke alone, it is one out of every seven verses. And in the book of James, it's one out of every five verses. A significant percentage of the Bible shows God's special concern and care for the poor and the oppressed. Daniel Grudy, I have his book, but I forgot to bring it up. He's a priest and a professor at Notre Dame, and he provides a wake-up call in his book for the American church. He says, based on God's overwhelming concern, this is his conclusion when he looks at all of the verses that speak about God's concern for the poor. He says, from a Christian perspective, whenever a community ceases to care for the most vulnerable members of society, its spiritual integrity falls apart. So Jesus, in his words, intends no loophole. He will not entertain any verbal gymnastics that try to weaken or narrow his intent. Instead, his words most certainly encompass all who are poor in every capacity that is seen and experienced because he completely identifies with what it's like to be oppressed and marginalized. So what then may we conclude from his words? There's probably a lot that is going through your heads as well. One of the former leaders in our covenant, one of our retired presidents, once said, you don't have insight until you're on site. So as you consider steps to enact or live your faith, think of when you were most on site in terms of drawing near to the least of these. When have you been most proximate to suffering? 
I put a couple of those questions on the back so you don't have to write them down. When have you been close enough to identify with the pain of another in great need? All of that insight that you gain from that experience should motivate us. And so my question that I want to leave with you today is, where might God be calling you to draw near, to gain insight so that you might be able to act in love on behalf of the least of these? All followers of Christ are called to this way. All of us are called to sacrificial living and love with a spirit of mercy. There are no exceptions. I don't get a pass. You don't get a pass. Even our little children don't get a pass. Images of the final judgment are not meant to keep us thinking about or worried about the future, though. They're rather meant to open us to life in the present in God's kingdom, calling us to act in the ways that we see Jesus act, for our hearts to be motivated as we see his heart was motivated. Verse 32 explains clearly that all nations will be gathered before Jesus one day. It actually says this in Revelation 7. It says, a diverse gathering, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's actually a very beautiful image that draws our minds to this beautiful mosaic of God's kingdom. You see, God has always had a much bigger view than we have. He's always had the whole picture in mind. A picture of just an amazing diversity of people. Every tribe and nation, tongue, and people group. Then and now. Everyone made in the image of God. Everyone valuable and worthy. Created to live out a unique role. What's your role? How is God calling you to reflect the goodness of himself? To act as a light pointing to his love, mercy, and justice. Sometimes when I read Revelation, you know, it has a lot of dramatic images and some of them are a little scary to read. But when I read Revelation, I think of that day when all will be gathered all who are faithful to the Lord, and may that be what we hear the Lord say, the King of kings, well done, my good and faithful servants. Friends, this is good news, but it's also strong challenge as well. As Christ has declared it to be, may it be so in our hearts as well. To the glory of God. Let's pray. God, your word can never be domesticated. Your word of comfort can never override your word of challenge. We saw most intensely in your life how you saw people called the least of these how your heart was moved with compassion over and over again by the crowds. You were tired. You were worn out. And yet it says you had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
God, you are our great shepherd, and you have called us to engage in that kind of work too. So I pray not only for us individually, but also us as a church, that you would help us and motivate us to find our place with the least of these. The places where you are calling us to move and act, to enact your justice here on earth. For until that day, the mosaic that we are part of is incomplete. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in the midst of challenge, you still love us. You still choose us. And you want us to walk with you. We praise you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.